last week, um, as we as we learned uh, in last week's message, Jesus not only revealed that one of the inner circle twelve would betray him, he also revealed to John who it was as they were eating the Passover. And as you recall, the the way that he he did this was he gave the betrayer the choicest piece of bread or meat as he sat to Jesus' left in the seat of honor. And as we found out last week, not that you didn't already know this, but it was uh, one of the most unlikely of suspects. It was the treasurer, Judas Iscariot. And it was at this moment that Satan began possessing Judas and Jesus gave him his orders to get on with his plans. And that's pretty much uh, where we left off last week and we'll uh, finish off the chapter uh, this week. So I was going to tell you what the outline was, but uh, for some reason our outline is not, or, or our overhead is not working, so maybe we're going outline-less this morning. Is that, is that the case? I, I guess you'll live if, that, if, if that's the, the case. But in any, in any sense, we'll uh, read the passage here this morning, we'll pray, and then we'll get to business here. So let's uh, read uh, John chapter 13, starting there in verse 31, and we'll go to the end of the, the chapter. When he had gone out, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. Little children, yet a little while I am with you. You will seek me, and just as I said to the Jews, so now I also say to you, where I'm going, you cannot come. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus answered him, where I'm going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow me afterward. Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. Jesus answered, will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow till you have denied me three times. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we uh, open the word this morning, we pray that you will use it to convict our hearts, to warm our hearts towards you. Let our devotion to Christ be real, be sincere, be genuine. And Lord, as we walk out of here this morning, let the things that we heard uh, not just dissipate, but implant deeply into our, our souls and that we would live these things out. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, the Lord provides, huh? Look at this, huh? All right, there's a pretty simple outline line here. The message is uh, called the New Commandment. Uh, in part one, we're going to look at the aftermath of Judas's betrayal in verse 31 to 35. We're going to look at Peter's betrayal in uh, verses 36 to 38, and then a few things by way of application uh, there. So with that said, let's uh, hit verse 31. When he had gone out, Jesus said, now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. Now, from, for some reason, unbeknownst to myself, the ESV uh, has, has decided not to translate the conjunction, therefore. 
And so, uh, but that's important. I don't, I'm not sure what the rationale for that is, but it shows the relationship between Jesus's actions, which we're going to look at here in light of Judas's departure. He dismisses Judas and therefore this is what Jesus does. Um, Now that Judas's plot to betray Jesus has been set in motion, it triggers the events that will get uh, Jesus to the cross. So this is what sets the plan in motion. So we're going to see his arrest, his trial, his crucifixion, and then ultimately his resurrection. Furthermore, uh, Jesus is now alone with his most trusted disciples, and now he is ready to pour out his heart in this farewell discourse. So in order to understand the next couple of verses, uh, we need to make sure that we understand the meaning of one word, and that's what I have on the screen for you here, the word glorified. Now, if you notice, this word appears five times in verses 31 to 32, so we better understand uh, what the word means, or we're going to be in the dark going forward, uh, what we're talking about here. Thayer's lexicon provides a very helpful definition for us. The word glorified means to make renown, to uh, render illustrious, or in other words, to cause the dignity and worth of some person or thing to become manifest and acknowledged. So that's very helpful to understand that. So the implication of what Jesus is saying here has to do with the glorification of the Son now, in the here and now, and how his Father is likewise glorified in him. Now, with that said, how is Jesus presently being glorified and the Father being glorified in his Son? Well, it can only refer to one thing, and that is his death on the cross for our sins and his subsequent resurrection. So in other words, now that Judas's betrayal has launched the events that culminate in Christ going to the cross, the glorification of the Son has already begun in the here and now. Leon Morris uh, says it like this. He says, quote, the glory of Christ as he stoops to save us is the glory of the Father whose will he is doing, unquote. Now, I want you to think of how ironic this statement is. The, the son's greatest display of shame, dying a criminal's death on the cross, is the very act which brings to him and his father glory. You know, from a human's vantage point, that hardly seems like glory. You know, put yourself in the disciples' place who are, who are there, who are hearing these words. This would be extremely painful for them to be there and to watch and to experience. But the fact of the matter is, as they would, it would be the most glorifying to Jesus and his Father. But they're going to see Jesus hanging on a cross, beaten to an unrecognizable degree, meaning that if you had seen him and didn't know who it was, you would have no idea that that was Jesus. He would be writhing in in pain. He would be naked between two thieves. And then you ask yourself, how in the world is that glorifying? That befuddles human wisdom. 
You know, we can't help but think of 1 Corinthians 1.18 here. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is what? The power of God. How can such shame bring Trinitarian glory? How in the world is that possible? That's foolishness to the human mind. But for believers, we know that it is actually the ultimate demonstration of God's power to save. But we understand it from the unbeliever's perspective. Why this seems so ridiculous? How could that be? Let's pause for just a moment and think about how the crucifixion brought mutual glorification or mutual glory to the Father and to the Son. You know, for the Father, it showed just how wise he is to devise a plan that allowed him to maintain his justice and his holiness while at the same time being able to justify or declare righteous the ungodly. Sin demands justice because God's law is broken. And God's holiness, as we know, cannot stand sin. So sending his son to live the perfect life and then offer that perfect life up to his father would satisfy the demands of both his justice and his holiness. That's how it would bring glory to the Father. But for the Son, the crucifixion brought him glory by showing him to be merciful, compassionate for sinners, willing to pay the penalty that sinners deserve by suffering the Father's wrath in our place on the cross. This also displayed his power in being able to successfully bear the weight of the world's sin and to destroy Satan's power. You know, when you think of the Son of Man in this verse, from an Old Testament perspective, you know, your first reaction would be to think of the Messiah and his glory. You know, the most famous passage in the Old Testament is found in Daniel chapter 7. Oh, that's really small, huh? Oh, well, I mean, uh, it's, it's there if you could see it. But Daniel 7, verses 13 to 14, uh, this is the most famous Son of Man passage, says this. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a Son of Man. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And listen to these words. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom. That all peoples and nations and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away. And his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. The son of man was associated with glory. Specifically glory as he came into his kingdom. There are certainly other passages in the gospels that also maintain this emphasis like Matthew 16, 27. For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the, what, glory of his Father, and then he will repay each person according to what he has done. But then, you know, on the other hand, there are also shocking passages in the Gospels that relate the Son of Man to suffering, such as Matthew 12, verse 40. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Here the Son of Man isn't so glorious, but he's going to be dead and buried. 
Or what about Matthew chapter 20, verse 18? See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and scribes, and they will condemn him to death. Now, think of what John does here in his gospel. He combines both of these ideas of glory and suffering together in this passage. Only the glory referred to here is not the future glory that Daniel 7 and Matthew 16 speaks of, him coming in his glorious kingdom, but a present glory in suffering and death on a cross. So think of it like this. God's glory is put on full display in the perfect obedience and death of his son on the cross. And so with that said, we are now prepared for the rest of Jesus' statement there in verse 32. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. Now, whenever you see you know, the hymns and hymns, it, it can get kind of confusing, right? So let me give you my paraphrase here and retranslate this verse here for you. If God is glorified in Jesus, then the conclusion is that God will in the future glorify Jesus in himself. And in addition to that, he will glorify Jesus immediately. Well, we've already talked about how God will glorify Jesus at once, meaning in the cross, Uh, event that is about to take place right in less than 24 hours but what about the future glorification that Jesus refers to well uh, for help let's look at John chapter 17 verse 5 and now this is Jesus praying to his father in his high priestly prayer he says and now father glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you Before the world existed. Notice the significance of what Jesus prays to his heavenly father. There was in eternity past a face to face relationship of glory that existed between the father and the son in heaven before the world and everything else was ever created. This is a glory that is Trinitarian in nature, totally unique to the persons in the Godhead, a glory that only deity can share. In other words, you'd have to be Father, Son, and Spirit to understand this relationship of glory. And this gives us a glimpse into eternity past, and it demonstrates without a shadow of a doubt that Jesus preexisted his earthly birth. So think about it. Jesus is praying to his heavenly Father, asking him to restore him back to this previous position of face-to-face glory, much like it was before he left heaven. And in order to enter back into that glory, there's only one way to get there. He will have to sacrifice his perfect life of obedience upon a cross. He's going to have to die, be resurrected, and then exalted back to the right hand of the Father. Verse 33, little children, yet a little while I am with you. You will seek me, and just as I said to the Jews, so now I also say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. 
You know, it may seem kind of weird for Jesus to address other grown men, you know, who are kind of in the same stage of life, around the same age as little children, right? Like if I was meeting with you today and I said, you know, hey, little children, you know, you might be like, what? You know, what's going on with that, you know? Um, But you have to understand, this is meant to be a term of affection, and uh, this was not uncommon in those days uh, for a teacher to address his, uh, his students that way. And in this context, it's Jesus as a spiritual leader, right, uh, calling his spiritual children uh, by this term. And, you know, this is why Jesus waits until Judas departs before he begins to address them this way. Now, if you're thinking about this in terms of the rest of your Bible, we see that the Apostle John adopts this same practice in his first epistle, and then the Apostle Paul also does in the book of Galatians as well. So, you know, think about, think about a father who speaks to his children and knows that he's about to die and he's going to leave his, his children as orphans. Think of it in that context. That's what Jesus is doing here. He's preparing his disciples for his departure, letting them know that he's only going to be there for a little while longer. Again, Jesus is going to die in less than 24 hours. But as we know, he's going to be gloriously resurrected three days later, and then he's going to be with his disciples for another 40 days after that, and then he's going to return to heaven. And so, in addition to all of this, he tells them, his disciples, where I'm going, you cannot come, which was the same thing that he had told the Jewish leaders on a different occasion. Now, although that what, what he said to the Jewish leaders sounds like the same thing that he says here to his disciples, they have two entirely different nuances. To the Jewish leaders, it was a warning to believe in him before it was too late, whereas here, what he says to his disciples are actually words of comfort. For example, I want you to listen to what Jesus told the Jews back in chapter 8, verse 21. So he said to them again, I am going away, and you will seek me, and you will die in your sin. Where I am going, you cannot come. Now, in this case, the reason why they can't go where Jesus is going is because Jesus is going to heaven, and they're not going to heaven. They're going to a different place, right? So they're going to die in their sin, Jesus tells them, meaning that you're going to die in your sin of unbelief. You've rejected me. They've rejected Jesus, and therefore they're going to have to bear their own consequences for their sin in hell, which is a place of eternal punishment, and therefore they're not going to go where Jesus is going to heaven. By the way, that's true of everyone today. Um, that rejects Jesus, who refuses to believe in him. They cannot go where he is going. Now, this is certainly a different outcome than that of his own disciples. Now, just a few verses later, in fact, we're going to look at this next week, Jesus will tell his own disciples this wonderful truth of comfort. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so... Would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, 
I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, there you will be also. Jesus is preparing a place for his own people for one simple reason. They're going to spend an eternity with him in his father's house. But uh, what Jesus is saying, then the nuance is not that you're never going to get there, but you can't go there right now because you have work to do on the earth. So two very different, same statement, two very different messages to two very different audiences. That brings us to verse 34. A new commandment I give to you that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. Well, you know, in light of the fact that Jesus' departure is imminent, he prepares his disciples by giving them their marching orders while he's away. So he's getting ready to go. He's going to leave. And he says, look, this is, this is the, the, the big thing that I want you to think about and to employ in your life. So let's talk about this new commandment that Jesus left to his disciples. And what is it that makes it new? Now, by the way, the emphasis on the word new is not one that is normally used for something that is brand new. But the the newness is new in respect to quality, meaning it is something fresh, new and improved, uh, you know, if you will. I mean, think about it, how many products that you see on the market that are new and improved, right? Like, oh, there's new Dawn, right? Dish soap. And what it means by that is not that Dawn has just been invented, right? But it means it's the same Dawn, but it's the new and improved version. It's better than it was before. There's a freshness about this new Dawn as opposed to the, the, the old Dawn that you got before. So there's not something brand new, but something fresh and new, new and improved, so to speak. Because if you think about it, we have verses in the Old Testament, like Leviticus chapter 19, verse 18, which said, you shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. So the command to love one another isn't new in the sense that nothing like it has ever been commanded by God. No, it was, it was in the Old Testament law. But it's new in one fresh, important, unprecedented way, and that is, just as I have loved you. That makes all the difference in the world as to how we are to understand this new command. We now have the standard of Jesus' love to inform how it is that we are to love one another. The Old Testament saints didn't have this example. They didn't have God come in the flesh and then show them what it looks like to love human beings. So this is, this is new and a higher standard than what we find in the law. There we are said to love our neighbors as ourselves, which is certainly a high standard, right? We, we have a difficulty to love our neighbors as ourselves because we are very selfish people, right? So to love our neighbor as ourselves means, wow, we have really sacrificed. But now we are to go beyond that standard to love more than we love ourselves, but to love 
as Christ has loved. Notice, you know, this isn't a general command to love all people. That is in the Bible too, it's just not here. But the love of Christian to other Christians. You know, there is no similar command, by the way, for believers to love unbelievers in the same way that Christ loved them. Demonstrating that there is a priority of love that believers have towards other believers over unbelievers. You know, we we see this prioritization not just here in the new command, but even in other places. Like in Paul's writing. Look at Galatians chapter 6, verse 10. So then, as we have opportunity... Let us do good to everyone. So there's the principle. There should be a willingness to do good to everyone that we come across. And especially to those who are of the household of faith. So again, there is a definite responsibility to do good for everyone that the Lord puts in our path, in our sphere of influence. Whether that be of a physical or of a spiritual nature. Yet... Should there ever be a conflict of interest between a believer and an unbeliever, the priority should always go to loving the believer. This is why, by the way, the foot washing example was so important in this regard. It's summarized in one act, the humbling, self-sacrificial love that Jesus demonstrated to his people, not just in the act itself. You remember we talked about this? It was important as an act but even greater than the act itself it was symbolic it pointed forward to the humbling self-sacrificial death of Jesus on the cross so the foot washing becomes a symbol of the crucifixion and of this there would be no greater example of love possible I've always said that this command has to be one of the hardest uh, command that is given to the believer in all of Scripture. You know, you simply cannot overestimate how difficult um, it is to fulfill the terms of this command. You know, uh, J.C. Ryle in his commentary, uh, he just said this very off the cuff. He says, of all the commands of our master, there is none which is so much talked about and so little obeyed as this. You know, why why is this? Why do we like to talk about love? But as Ryle points out, we struggle to to do it in, in everyday life. Well, the reason for it is, is that biblical love, in contradistinction to worldly love, doesn't focus on the emotional, nor does it have strings attached to it. That's how we love in the world, right? We're all, oh, I love you so much, oh, right? And we get all, oh, someone's alarming off. Uh, we, get all, we get all, you know, touchy-feely about it, right? The emotional part. But then a lot of times our love is so conditional. I'll love me. I'll love you if you love me back, right? But if you don't love me back, I withhold my love towards you. That's worldly love, right? Very selfish um, by definition. But biblical love acts, not just feels. And it's unselfish by definition, Whereas we, by nature, are very selfish people. I I want to take a look at another passage very quickly here. At what John, same author, 
says about love based on the new commandment. Oh boy, that's kind of hard to read too, huh? That's kind of small there. I guess I better use more than one slide on these longer passages here. But in 1 John chapter 4, verses 7 to 12, this is what he says there. He says, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. In this the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. You know, notice how the the command to love is based on the fact that love comes from God. Therefore, if you don't have the capacity to love, that's because you really don't know God. And where do we see love demonstrated for us? Well, we see it in the Father and the Son. How does the Father show his love towards us? Well, the passage says, he sends his Son to die as a propitiation for our sins. So Jesus bears the wrath of his Father that that our sins deserve while he's hanging up on the cross and in turn, he exchanges our sins and he gives us instead his righteousness. We give Jesus our sins and our consequences for them and he gives us his righteousness so that we can then have a right standing before his father. And that's the very definition of what love is. Love is demonstrated through actions, not emotions. Did you ever notice that? If you're looking through scripture, you don't see the emphasis on, you know, love is emotional, right? Or love is, you know, touchy-feely. You don't see that. But you see that, you know, even in our most famous verse, God so loved the world that he gave his only son, right? Now, that doesn't mean that love is devoid of emotions. Love can be very emotional, But all we're saying is that in Scripture, that's not where the emphasis is. Now, that's where we tend to put the emphasis in our daily life is on the emotional. But in Scripture, it's on the action, that actions speak louder than words. And you could show somebody more what it is to love than just telling somebody that you love them. That doesn't really demonstrate love. Actions demonstrate love. goes on to say in verse 35, by this... All people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. How will the world know that you are a follower of Christ? Well, they will only know if you love each other like Jesus. Now, again, that consists of self-sacrificial, self-giving, selfless love that mirrors Christ's love for us. 
This is to be the defining characteristic, then, of Christ's disciples. Now, I want you to think about this corporately, okay? Think about this corporately at the church level. You know, if this is missing at Emmanuel Bible Church, it really doesn't matter how sound our doctrine is. It really doesn't matter how clear our gospel presentation is. It doesn't matter how advanced theologically we are or any of that kind of stuff. People will not hear any of that or they're going to be repulsed by it, right? Because if it's perceived that we're lacking in love for each other, it's just seen as a great big contradiction, a great big hypocrisy if we can't have love for each other. Uh, Tertullian, who was uh, an early Latin church father, he wrote to Roman magistrates to defend Christianity against slanderous charges, of which there were many. He had a famous, uh, one of his famous works that he wrote was called The Apology. And it was written just about a hundred years after the completion of the Gospel of John. And in it, he cites the testimony of pagans, non-believers, and how they were greatly impressed at the love that Christians showed one another even in the face of intense persecution. This is what he, what he records 100, about 100 years after the Gospel of John. He says, but it is mainly the deeds of love so noble that lead many to put a brand upon us. See, they say, how they love one another for themselves are animated by mutual hatred. How they are ready even to die for one another for they themselves will sooner put to death. The testimony of the early church, a hundred years after the Gospel of John, was see how they love one another. Is that our testimony here in the 21st century? Verse 36, Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus answered him, where I am going, you cannot follow me, but you will follow afterward. Now here's the interesting thing, right? This is kind of a heavy new commandment, right? So you would think, oh man, I want to ask some more about this. Peter totally ignores the new command or he's totally disinterested you know, in what Jesus just said. And instead he asks what, what Jesus said before. Lord, where are you going? You know, Does Peter really not know what Jesus is talking about in terms of this, you know, he, he's going to be leaving and all this? Well, Jesus lets Peter know in no uncertain terms that where he's going, Peter cannot follow now. But you know what, Peter? You will follow me afterward. In other words, it's not your time yet to die, Peter, um, but that time will come and you will follow me into glory. Just not yet. Well, Peter said to him, Lord, why can't I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. Even though Peter asked Jesus uh, earlier about where he was going, you know, if you look at his answer here, it seems to indicate that he had at least an idea of what Jesus meant, that he wasn't totally in the dark, but he kind of figured as much that Jesus meant he was going to die. So he asked Jesus why he can't follow Jesus right now because not only am I willing to die, 
But I will lay down my life for you, Jesus. Even though Peter is asking a question, it's really more of a rebuke. It's really like a challenge, you know, to Jesus. And his boast sounds very similar to what Jesus said in John chapter 10, verse 11. There he said this, I'm the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. All four Gospels record Peter's boast. But, you know, the synoptics add some details that are not mentioned here by the Apostle John. For example, Matthew records more of Peter's boast. Oops, this is the the wrong one here. Though they all fall away because of you, I will never fall away. I'm I'm not sure how this one got in there, but... uh, Sorry about that. That's the, the, the wrong verse. Luke mentions these additional words. Lord, I'm ready to go with you both to prison and to death. So we see that Peter, he had a very high view of himself and quite a bit of confidence and arrogance as well. He shows little evidence of humility or his own weakness, which will actually be the source Of his own downfall. And you know, like many of us, Peter didn't know his own heart as he wouldn't end up laying down his life for Christ. In fact, what's the the, the fact of the matter is he would end up saving his own life, right? He became, Peter, an illustration of Proverbs 16, 18, which says what? Pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. You know, it's easy to make these, you know, lofty, I will die for Jesus, you know, kind of comments, you know, uh, especially when you're in a room full of believers like we are now. I will never deny Jesus. I will, I will be the strongest advocate, the greatest witness in front of all of you. I could say that, right? Be as tough as I want, be as bold as I want. We can, you know, talk a big game, brag about how we're going to take a stand for Jesus. We're never going to compromise and we're going to confront the lost world outside those doors, right, for Jesus with the gospel. But guess what? You don't get to stay in here for, forever. Eventually, you've got to walk out those, those doors into the real world. And what do you find? Not so easy anymore, is it? There's pressure to conform. There's fear of offending other people. There's fear of being persecuted. Fear of being made fun of. Fear of not fitting in. You know, we need to be careful that we don't overestimate ourselves and underestimate our own weaknesses. Otherwise, we might just learn the hard way that we're not as committed to Christ as we claim we are. You know, every single one of us must realize that we are weak, frail, imperfect disciples, and that there is no sin too great that we can fall into given the right circumstances or provocations. I think if you were honest with yourself, maybe you've said this in your heart of hearts, you might have said, oh, there's no, there is a certain sin that I would never commit that sin. That's pride in your heart if you really think that. You know, like Peter, you might think that there are certain sins that are beyond you, that you could never fall into, 
And so then, what does that lead to? You look down upon other people that fall into those sins that you say, I would never do that. He's a weakling, or he's, you know, beneath me spiritually. That's the essence of pride. Thinking way too highly of yourself. And when you do that, you let your guard down. And you you rely less on the power of Christ. And the next thing you know, you're giving in to the very sin that you condemned others for. And the strength that you thought you had was really but a mere illusion. Always remember the words of James chapter 4, verse 6. God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. So be in the position to receive God's grace rather than his opposition, right? Be humble. Verse 38, Jesus answered, will you, will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow till you have denied me three times. So Jesus challenges Peter's bold claim, which again is really a rebuke of Jesus, by making a prediction. Not only will you not give up your life for me, the rooster won't crow until you've actually denied me, not once, not twice, but yeah, three times. You will do the exact opposite of what you're claiming for yourself, and uh, you will actually give me up to save your life. Now think about it, if you were there, and you were Peter. Does Peter drop to his knees at this point? Is he humbled? Is he devastated by the Lord's revelation? You know, John doesn't mention it here, but Matthew adds these details in his gospel. He says this, Peter said to him, even if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And all the disciples said the same. You know, even though Peter gets the blame for making such a bold assertion and then failing to back it up, um, we shouldn't miss the point that all the other disciples that were in the room, they were saying the same thing. Yeah, yeah, me too, me too. I'll die for you too, right? They were probably singing the Prince song, right? I will die for you, right? So everyone was singing that song, not just, not just Peter, right? But he's recorded here probably because he was the lead guy, right? Um, also, let's not forget that Peter did show some courage when Jesus was about to be arrested. Okay, so let's have some balance to this. Remember, he cut off the ear of the high priest's uh, servant, obviously aiming for, you know, his, his head. He ducked and, you know, he chopped off his, his ear instead. So we don't want to exaggerate the picture of Peter as if he's a total coward, unwilling to stand for Christ at all. Right? There's more nuance to him than that. But, uh, you know, uh, so there is an ultimate failing, but not, uh, not only failing. One last comment, by the way, concerning the rooster crowing. Okay? Uh, this is for your roosterology here, details. Uh, as best as we could tell, uh, roosters in Palestine, they usually crowed around 12.30 in the morning, 1.30 in the morning, and 2.30 in the morning. Uh, 
That's awful, by the way. Can you imagine trying to sleep? I, I, I've been in places where they had the, the roosters crow. Oh, my gosh, you cannot sleep through that. Uh, and so that caused the Romans to coin the term cock crow. And what that meant is it covers the period between midnight and 3 a.m. So when you see, like, read your Bible about reading about this and cock crowing, you realize that this is very early in the morning when all of this is transpiring. And that helps us to narrow down when these events would eventually take place. The fulfillment of which is in chapter 18, verse 27. Now what's ironic about Peter's comment is that though his boast to give up his life for Christ wouldn't be realized, the fact of the matter is that Jesus was about to give his life for Peter. And the rest of the disciples. You know, at the same time, Peter's confident boast would actually come to pass about 30 years later. Jesus, you know, would tell him in a post-resurrection appearance, he would say this, Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you. And carry you where you don't want to go. This he said to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. That's in the very end of this gospel, chapter 21, verses 18, 19. But I want you to understand something. By this time, when Jesus said this, Peter was, would be a much humbler man. And church tradition seems to indicate that Peter suffered the same kind of death as his Lord, and that was crucifixion. Now, all this, although this point is disputed, so I don't know if this is true or not, but it's recorded as early as uh, in the early father origin. Um, church tradition has stated that because Peter felt unworthy to die in the same manner as his Lord, he requested that he be crucified upside down. Whether that's true or not, I don't know, but I think there is pretty good evidence that he was crucified nonetheless but regardless of how peter died he like jesus would glorify god in his death all right that that leads us to this let me give you a few things to think about as we get ready for communion here this morning number one i ask you the same question that jesus asked peter Will you lay down your life for Christ? Christian, what do you value more? Your life or Jesus? You know, you may not ever be faced literally with this decision, although many have. But if you are faced with such a decision, can you really say in your heart that you will lay down your life for Jesus? I'm not asking for an answer out loud or a show of hands or anything like that. I just want you to think about it in your heart. What's the most important thing to you as you sit here this morning? Whatever the answer is to that question uh, should provide much food for thought uh, during the week. Because if the answer is no, I wouldn't lay down my life for you, Lord. At least you know where you are. Now the question becomes, why is that? What is it that's more important than you? Why do I value my life more than, more than you? If the answer is yes, I would. Take that devotion and nourish it, feed it, 
and humbly grow it for the Lord's glory. But you remember what Jesus told his disciples in Matthew chapter 16, verses 24 to 25. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Yes, Jesus went to the cross to die for our sins, and we certainly cannot do that, right? We can't go to the cross. We can't die for anyone's sins, right? But every Christian has their own cross to bear, meaning death to self, death to worldliness and self-seeking, death to your own way of life in order to follow Christ. This daily death to self if you think about it, in some ways, might be harder than literally dying for Christ. Because, you know, if you die physically for Christ, it's one and done. It's over with. That's all all you had to do. That one act and it's done. Dying to the self daily, however, is the lifelong responsibility of Christ's disciple. This is, by the way, why Paul exhorts the believers in Romans 12, verse 1. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Old covenant sacrifices were animals that were killed at the altar in the temple. But that's not the case with the believer as a new covenant living sacrifice. So instead of offering up an animal for sacrifice like in the Old Covenant, the New Covenant believer offers up himself as a living sacrifice. This means that you belong wholly to God and not to yourself. And that you are living sacrificially to worship and serve the Lord. The question is, is that true of you? What an immense challenge to love other believers as Christ has loved us. This is the new commandment that new covenant believers are commanded, not suggested that we do. I think sometimes we read this and we think, well, that's a great suggestion. It's not called a new suggestion, right? It's a new commandment. Wow. Have we ever loved others to the same degree as Christ loved us? No. Simple answer is no. Not ever. Because that's not possible. But there is good news. We can love others in the same way. Self-sacrificially. Humbly. Selflessly. And last, I think this is most important, willingly. Because that ability to love comes from God, not from ourselves. You know, historically speaking, the church has always been at its best when it has strived to follow this command and has stood out as a striking testimony to the rest of the world. So here at IBC, let's strive to live out the new commandment and to be that kind of testimony in our world today as well.